This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, welcome to another Saturday morning here on Zoomer Radio. And yes, this is The Garden Show. And no, we're not live in the studio. For the reasons why we had to adjust our schedules, let me, Frankie Proctor, your sous chef of the garden, pass it over to the master gardener herself, none other than Charlie Dobbin. Well, Charlie, explain. Okay, well... Here it is. As you probably know, and many of our listeners know, I moved to a new home in Prince Edward County uh, just last summer, and it's a two-acre lot with absolutely nothing on it except a brand new house. So it's been a big process to get this landscaping going, and we had a very large load of trees and shrubs delivered about two weeks ago, but there's still a few plants outstanding. Now, thank goodness, those trees are now planted. I, I, I lost count. I think we've got about 40 odd trees that we planted and I had a lot of help to do that which was great but picture this large machines digging gardens as per the painted lines that I placed on the ground then the gardens are all filled up with beautiful triple mix which is piled high it's very light and fluffy and all that was great but the lawn people want to start spreading topsoil so that's another 30 truckloads by the way so that also happens via large machines guess what happens where did the garden edges go? I, the soil, oh, no. the triple mix and the topsoil are two different colors. That's the only way I can tell them apart. So I've been out there with my rake and my shovel, just trying to reclaim the gardens in the last few days and then get all the smaller stuff into the gardens. But we've had a bit of rain and it's been a bit muddy. So to explain why we're still recording the show, it's because I absolutely have to get the small stuff, all those little shrubs and perennials planted before those lawn folks uh, come and do their magic. And I've got one more load arriving via Paul DeGroote, one of my favorite people, this coming Saturday. So I've got to be here for that. Once the turf seed is drilled and or hydro-seeded, we definitely cannot step out onto the land. Wow. So again, with next week in mind, we will try to be in studio to accept phone calls, right? Yeah, that's the plan. So assuming my grass seed <laughs> does go down next week, then I can't go outside more, you know, I can go up my front door into my driveway and that's it. So I'm going to be good to go for a trip into the big smoke. <laughs> okay. And did you receive enough emails for today's show? Absolutely. We have lots. Enough for two more shows anyway. All right. We have a wee bit of time on our hands, so maybe this would be a good time to go over some of the chores that gardeners should keep in mind as we approach fall. Now, I know the weather this past week had a definite touch of fall attached to it. How about you in the county? Um, same. Same kind of weather conditions. And, and the best time... Any of all the year, the best time to plant turf grass seed is now. And I know there's a lot of folks out there with some pretty sparse looking lawns. So this is true for me with a new lawn, but anybody who needs to top dress and overseed, now's the time to do it. 
So watch the weather. Plant new grass seed just before a good rain because that way you don't have to get out there with your sprinklers. So that's what I'm doing because it would be impossible for me to put out sprinklers on my multi-acres. Um, and, you know, we're on a well, obviously. So when you are purchasing grass seed, it'll be a blend. Remember, you get what you pay for. Don't go cheap. Don't scrimp. Choose the right blend for your property. So recognize that you might have high traffic areas. You might have shady areas, sunny or something in between. Choose the blend that works best for you. Um, personally, I'm going to try some of the eco lawn that was first blended by Wildflower Farms a number of years ago. It's a complete um, blend mix of five different fescues, super drought tolerant and low maintenance once it's established. Okay, now just a reminder, folks, that you're listening to Zoomer Radio, and we're located in Liberty Village in downtown Toronto, Canada. But we welcome you from wherever you're tuned in today. Absolutely, and keep those emails coming for now from wherever you are in in the dirt. Once we're back in the (laughs) studio, we'll definitely devote a special segment to all these great and thoughtful questions you've been sending for the past several months. Uh, Hey, Frankie. Yeah. Anything new to report from your idyllic cabin in the woods? Oh, oh, yes. The March of the Mice is on. (laughs) Mickey and Minnie and all their clan have looked at the calendar and said, Okay, gang, let's find a warm spot to spend the winter. Oh, look at this. A log cabin in the middle of the woods. And they even put a fire on to warm the place up. Come on, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Shirley must be just thrilled to bits. Oh, God, is she so happy. (laughs) All right, I'm just getting the jog in the ribs here, hypothetically speaking, from our producer, Joel, that it's time for our first break. So Charlie and I will be right back after these words, of course, from our sponsors here on Zoomer Radio. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, Charlie, uh, we have a note here from Gary and Susan Miller. Greetings from Hamilton. We really enjoy listening to you on the Garden Show on Zoomer Radio. We have three large banana trees, and then they've sent you a picture, and we need to bring them inside for the winter. Now, as you can see, we planted them in large pots instead of directly into the garden. We keep them in our basement over the winter. Now, I have a couple of questions. When is the best time to move them inside for the winter? They are quite large now and very cumbersome to move down our house stairs and into the basement. Can we cut the palms off before we try to move them? We would really appreciate hearing from you on this subject as we don't want to lose these Beautiful trees. Well, thank you, Gary and Susan. Yeah, the the picture it looks lovely. They must have a large home for three big banana trees like that inside. Yeah, I I once grew a banana tree um, similar, but you know what? It, it was taking over my house. Like it, it I, my living room was running out of space between banana trees and fig trees and all kinds of trees. I eventually <laughs> just left it out and let it die in the winter. So main thing is you want to get those bananas inside before frost. Um, I personally would. 
look at it, look for a nice kind of sunny day coming up and give them a real thorough wash, like some soap, some water, some clean hose water to wash off the soap and just get all the dust and dirt and whatever little spiders and things that might be on them. Get those off. And then to get them in the house is um, the question was, could we um, cut off the, they referred to them as palms. So I think they meant fronds, like the leaves. So yes, you can cut them off. Whatever you do, do not cut the top off, but you can slice all those fronds off so it's going to look like you have a pole sticking up out of the pot, uh, you know, obviously with roots on the bottom. That's assuming that when you do take these plants to your basement, you put them into a dormant situation. So I assume you don't tell me that whether you've got lights or windows in your basement. So I, I'm assuming your basement is dark, so you're sticking them down for the winter and just let them sleep down there. So yes, cutting off the fronds is fine. Do not cut off the top. And of course, once you get them downstairs into this dormant state, you're going to stop watering. And you, but you will water on occasions. You're going to have to just keep an eye. You don't want them to dry completely out, but you certainly do not want to overwater them. Uh, they're going to just shut down immediately once all those fronds come off. So be very careful that they're not too wet. Like take them down fairly dry. It'll be easier for that that trip down the basement stairs. And <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, just a question for me: Do they actually get fruit, uh, bananas on those trees? Not you know? that it, it's pretty unusual. I, I, it's theoretically possible, but I don't think you would ever get uh, bananas. And if you did, it would start with a flower, then you would get you know a bunch of bananas, yeah. and then that plant would die. Ah, because banana bananas die after they produce fruit. But from the bottom of the plant, little daughter plants will start to grow up. So little suckers will grow from the bottom. So if you ever did get fruit, or you wanted to say, okay, these are just too big, you can slice out the mother, but leave the daughter. The, the little suckers that will grow from the bottom and start again with smaller plants. That might be a more optimal as uh, as the years go on. Well, I'm glad I asked the question. Thank you. <laughs> All righty. Uh, here's a note from Hazel Lowe in Mississauga. Uh, good morning, Charlie and Frank. Always listen to your show, and Charlie has helped me on several occasions. This time, it's my silver mound, which I've had for several years. It used to be a nice round silvery ball, but not anymore. She sent you a, attached photos. She can see that the leaves, if that's the right term, are spread out, and the center looks like it's dying at the base. It's planted in a fairly large pot, probably about 10 inches. What did I do wrong and what can I do to save it? Okay, Hazel, the pictures are great. They really show exactly what's going on there. So for people that don't know what Silver Mound is, it's Artemisia um, and Silver Mound is the cultivar. It's a really pretty mounded, soft, literally um, Silver Mound. Like it's a really sweet little plant. So optimal conditions for Silver Mound are full sun. So obviously six hours plus of full sun every day. In a, in a just an average soil, if the soil is too rich, meaning there's uh, too rich as in too much um, lovely organic material or too much fertilizer being applied, or the soil is too poor, so it's just like gravel or sand, your plant will end up looking like that. It will start to split and separate in the middle of the mound and just collapse. When this plant is happy, it, it's super drought tolerant. So one of the things you got to be careful of is allow it to dry out between waterings. Too much water will also end up with a with a plant that looks like this. And the, the sort of fourth 
uh, practice you can do to um, maintain the best plant is shear it. Midsummer, just when it starts to flower, it gets these really what we call inconspicuous flowers all over the tips of the plant. Get out your shears and give it a shearing at that point. And that, again, will help keep it more mounded and compact. But this plant does need to be divided every two to three years because it will get overgrown like this and start splitting open. So what I would do, Hazel, is get it out of the pot, get out a sharp knife, and sever it in, like, sever the root ball, so that's crown and roots attached, into, you know, two or three plants, however many you want to make it. But as long as you've got some roots and some crown, you're going to replant each of those um, chopped up plants, and um, and I would cut back the foliage at the same time. Replant into pots or share with your neighbors. If this is a hardy perennial, you should be able to put it in the ground if you wish to and leave it outside. But just make sure you get that real average soil, lots and lots of sun, <clears throat> and be careful. No fertilizer and and only water when necessary. Okay. Alrighty. Uh, I see we're kind of uh, limited for time for this segment, so I'm going to hold our next question that comes in from Dale Smith for just a moment or so, and we'll come back in the next segment to talk about it. But a, a brief reminder, we're recording this show last Tuesday. That would be July the 8th. So if we reference any weather stats, keep in mind it'll all be maybe different on Saturday morning. Uh, and we still just might need your emails again for next week. We're, we're hoping to be in the uh, studio next week, but uh, the old Scottish saying, you know, the best plans of mice and men at times gang of glay, right? So please send along your emails to Charlie Dobbin at c.dobbin at mzmedia.com and Charlie and I will return to the next segment here in the Garden Show in just a moment. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Uh, Charlie, we start out this segment with a little note from uh, Dale Smith, who says, uh, thanks to you and Frank and your team for the show. So a nod to Joel, who's at home getting ready to put all this stuff together for us. Says, uh, And Dale says, hi, Charlie. I received an amaryllis in January 2019, and it bloomed beautifully. During summer and fall of 2019, I followed instructions in the garden in dark, bring it out. January 2020, a shoot came up about five inches, but then nothing. In the spring, I put it outside. Several shoots came up around it. Original bulb was mushed away. Now I have these two other shoots what looks like uh, bulbs on them, and they've sent you pictures, hopefully that I might catch a bunch of amaryllis. What do I do with them now? Individual pots? Is plastic okay? There you go from (laughs) Dale Smith. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so Dale, uh, going back to the sort of first point about uh, January, um, sorry, where, where did you say it? Mushed out. The original bulb mushed out in the spring. Yeah. Okay, so the only reason a bulb mushes out or becomes mush is too much water. So here's the drill. First off, I see in the pictures your amaryllis bulbs are planted too deep. When we plant amaryllis into a pot, the top third of the bulb sticks out out of the soil, sticks up out of the soil. So two-thirds or or half whatever, 60% under the soil, roughly 30% out of the soil uh, in the pot. So right away, you've got to repot any of your amaryllis. I see that the the main bulb did disappear, and those little ones definitely are are daughters from the mother, and you can absolutely uh, pot them up individually. Plastic is okay, but... 
Don't be giving them big, huge pots. Amaryllis like to be really, really pot bound. So choose pots that are just slightly larger than the bulbs. So those are probably pretty small bulbs. You'll be going into at the most six inch pots. Remember, you're going to use a, a good quality, well-drained potting soil. And remember as well, some of the potting soils out there, and it says it right on the bag, uh, will have something in it where they talk about it being a water-retaining mix or with water crystals or something to do with how this soil holds water better than the average. That's great if you're planting, um, you know, annual flowers or tomatoes in pots, but that's not great for bulbs. You want just a regular, straight, run-of-the-mill potting mix or soilless mix, no water-retaining aspects to it, because again, you're going to end up with mush. So separate those little bulbs out into separate pots with that fresh soil. Um, Allow them to get established. So water once, keep them in the sun, allow those green leaves to grow for about a month more. Now bring them in before frost, obviously. Get them on a sunny windowsill if necessary. Just let them grow a little bit more and only, only water them when they are dry. None of this keeping them wet all the time. Then whenever you want, stop watering. Just shut down on the watering. Uh, Put those plants somewhere to rest. So um, it could be in your basement. It could be in a closet somewhere. They don't need to be kept cool, but they do need the dark. So no water and the dark. The leaves will turn yellow. Eight to 10 weeks later, of course, those leaves are gone. You've just got the bulb sitting in the pot. Bring those pots out, put them back onto that sunny window ledge. Water once only, okay, just once. And once you water once, you should start to see some growth. And after that, only water again when dry. So be very, very careful about overwatering. And and when the they're the bigger the plant, of course, the more water it's going to want. The smaller the plant, the less. So you know, never give it a teaspoon if you're going to water water thoroughly, but don't do it unless the plant is dry. All right. Yeah, if, I, if I've learned nothing uh, over these past 13 years is the fact that folks wind up killing their plants with kindness. Too much they, love. you got to have a little tough love. Yeah, yeah, a little tough love there, right? Yeah. Okay, Susan Clark writes in, Hi, Charlie. My neighbor and my niece have had an infestation of cucumber beetles and have lost many of their cucumbers this year. What's the best natural way to rid the soil of this pest and prepare your soil for next year's planting? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, you're right. The soil can be a problem for these for overwintering. There is no way to rid the soil of the pest other than what is often recommended is turning the soil twice. Uh, You can turn once in the fall and once in the spring, but they pupate in the soil, like they overwinter in the soil. So by turning the soil over, you bring them to the surface and those little overwintering pupa cases will die if they're up on the surface. So that's one way to eliminate the overwintering pests. But for the ne- for next year, just a couple of suggestions um, for your neighbor and your niece. When they are uh, shopping either for cucumber plants or seeds, try and find varieties that are resistant to bacterial wilt and cucumber mosaic virus. Okay, so those are two diseases that cucumbers get, but they get the diseases from the beetles. They're the beetles are the ones that spread the disease around, those cucumber beetles. So um, you, you will never absolutely eliminate every cucumber beetle, but you can certainly have a much, still have a plant that survives if it doesn't get either of those diseases. So resistant to bacterial wilt and cucumber mosaic virus. 
couple other suggestions. Interplant your cucumbers with some things that cucumber beetles don't like. For example, tansy, catnip, even marigolds will help deter the beetles because they don't like the smell of those things and they're going to stay away. Um, keep an eye for those beetles. Watch, watch. Once you do see a beetle, now you got to start looking under the leaves for egg clusters. And once you see egg clusters, you've got to remove those. So you're going to pick beetles, squish beetles, and remove egg clusters next year early in the season because this all starts in about June. The other thing thing I really like is floating row covers. So it's like a cheesecloth. You can buy them at a garden center and you, you early in the season, you go out there and you plant your, your little baby cucumber plants and right away, the day you're planting them, you're covering them with floating row covers. And that will keep any insects from getting near your plants at, at, when they're young and just getting established. Ultimately, you have to take those row covers off because the cucumbers need insects for pollination. So you leave the covers on until flowering starts and then the covers have to come off in order to get any fruit. At that point, now the covers are gone, that's when you're, again, really watching for the beetles, watching for egg clusters, and you can use rotenone dust. That is a completely organic insecticide that will kill them, uh, but follow all the instructions. Uh, Use rotenone at the right time of day because it's not selective and it will kill all insects. And of course, as I just said, you need some insects on your cucumbers in order to get fruit. So fine line when it comes to insecticides and cucumber plants. Okay, Charlie, you're a great uh, proponent for diversionary tactics, like uh, <laughs> you know using those those uh, other flowers that that beetles hate, and and uh, that is akin to your thoughts with uh, planting mm-hmm. bulbs and the squirrels. You plant an extra yeah. supply, or somewhere else you <laughs> have their own little stash to stay away from some, your stuff. <laughs> some things, times you can't win, right? You know, yeah. you're fighting a losing battle. You, Just don't you, go down that path. <laughs> join them, right? Okay. Um, here's a note from Maureen in Waynefleet. Hi, Charlie. I have two service berry shrubs. One is planted right next to the house foundation. Other planted in another location on the property. Now, they're both 15 years old. The summer, uh, the summer, the one up against the house had its leaves turn light green and then to a scorched orange and then they fall off starting with the lower branches. I keep both shrubs watered. Now, the shrub far away from the house of the foundation is fine. So there you go. Okay, so Maureen, you know what I think's happened there? Hot, hot summer, lots and lots of sun. The one, the, the service berry close to the house foundation probably uh, got baked because the heat, whether it was the high temperatures or sun, uh, was absorbed by the foundation of your home and that heat was reflected from your home back to the plant. So the plant got really stressed from all this heat and just said, oh, I can't deal with this anymore and decided to just go dormant to try and survive. And that's what plants will do in high stress situations. They'll just shut down early. I mean, right now we would expect the the service berry to be showing some color and losing some leaves, but it sounds like this probably happened uh, a few weeks ago. So don't worry about it. It's it's just gone into dormancy a little bit early. Do not fertilize. Whatever you do, I hope everybody's listening to this. No fertilizer anywhere on your properties anymore. Allow plants to shut down for winter. It's what they naturally do in the fall. Um, any fertilizer applied to plants now 
messes with their physiology because they're wanting to get ready for winter by slowing down. And when we fertilize, we speed them up. We tell them to grow. Any growth right now would be very, very soft, tender growth. And of course, winter's coming. So we don't want plants to be showing a lot of growth. So no fertilizer till next spring on that plant. And, and don't even water it anymore if it just looks dormant. Let it be. Ignore it. Uh, if we don't get any rain over the next couple of months, obviously you want it to be moist as winter comes. So leave your hose out as long as you can. Um, for uh, Make sure everything's well watered before winter, particularly your evergreens. And I, I think you'll find that next spring it'll be fine. It'll just pop right out with, with normal growth. Uh, it's likely still alive, but you'll know for sure what's going on with that shrub next spring. But like I said, I, I'm 90% sure that plant's going to come back and look just fine next spring. Okay, an optimistic note there from Charlie. Uh, hey, here's here's proof that we got listeners everywhere, just across the border, as a matter of fact. Have a nice note from Dave Lasher, Bloomfield, New York. I meant to look that up. I didn't, darn it. But uh, anyway, to uh, Dave listening in from Bloomfield, New York, he says, Charlie, since you're looking for email questions, I've got a simple one. My oriental lilies this year were attacked by those red bugs. And even though I tried removing them almost daily, uh, would it be helpful to dig the bulbs up now and move them to another location, thinking next year those little red buggers can't find them? Uh, <laughs> or would that just be a waste of time? Hmm. Good question. Uh, no, don't bother moving them. The, they're called lily leaf beetles. They've got a red back and a black belly, and they will find your lilies. So moving them is a waste of time. They're pretty good. They're pretty smart that way. One thing you can do is you can make up a spray with garlic. So you blend up the garlic and so into some boiling water. Like blend, crush the garlic, boiling water, stir it all around, leave it for an hour or so, filter out all the, the, the actual garlic garlic, put with that filtered liquid into a spray bottle with a couple of drops of soap, and then spray your lilies with this garlic soapy mixture. And you will have to keep spraying every couple of days. But again, you can trick the beetles because they won't be able to smell the, be the lilies because of the garlic. So that is worth trying because um, lily leaf beetles are a really big problem. They, um, they just devastate. They eat every part of the lily and it's just a mess. And when you try and pick them off, the um, you touch the, the lily, they fall to the ground and they always fall with their backs down on the ground and their bellies up and then you can't see them because they blend into the soil. So what I do is I lay out a sheet of newspaper and then I just knock the plant a bit and when they all fall off onto the newspaper, on their on their backs, I can see them, and then I just pour pour them all into some soapy water and kill a whole bunch at once. Where you are in New York, you might be able to get a hold of some neem oil. It's not available here in Ontario, but if you can, that is apparently effective at killing lily leaf beetles. If you follow instructions in terms of uh, uh, water and when, it's only the young larvae that you're really going to be effective with the neem oil. So um, if you can get neem oil, try that. You apply it every five to seven days throughout the. Early early summer to uh, kill the young ones. But the beetles themselves, uh, it's a pick and squish or drown or whatever the case may be. Good luck with that. Okay. Thanks so much, Charlie. And uh, she and I will return in moments here on Zoomer Radio. It's the Garden Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got the Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin exclusively on Zoomer Radio. 
Well, Charlie, here is a note from Andrea Reichstens, uh, and the subject is bindweed. She said, being driven to distraction by this determined pest, any ideas on elimination or control other than digging up the whole bed and replacing all the plants? Hmm. Yeah, bindweed is a real drag. It's a so the proper name for bindweed is convolvulus. <laughs> it looks like morning glory. So it's it, many people grow morning glory on purpose. But bindweed uh, is a vine that does bind things and strangle things. The flowers are smaller than the traditional morning glory, and the flowers are either white or pink. So what are you going to do? Okay, here's some suggestions. If you've got the bindweed growing in areas where you have no other plants that you're trying to save, boiling water, believe it or not, poured right onto the the, the bindweed will kill it. Uh, Roundup sprayed onto bindweed will kill it. Of course, it might take more than one spray. It might take more than one pot of boiling water, but you can kill this stuff, particularly in the spring. That's where you have no other plants that you're trying to save because they would die as well with Roundup or boiling water. Repeated pruning is where you follow the bindweed back to where it's come, you know, emerging from the ground. You cut it off at ground level and you continue to monitor as it grows back. You have to keep cutting it down to ground level. Eventually, the root will run out of energy if you don't let any growth appear above ground and eventually it will it will die. Another thing I learned is bindweed grows in poor soil. So one of the things you can do is you can improve your soil uh, and then the plants, the chosen plants, will be much happier and they will outcompete the bindweed. So improving the soil can actually be a good thing for eliminating bindweed. And and I also heard, this is new to me, but this is a, a herbicide I heard about. It's called adios. So the word A-D-I-O-S with periods in between is a herbicide that's uh, Eco-friendly, it's a foliar herbicide used for the control of broadleaf weeds. And it's non-toxic, it's odorless. You spray it on the weed and it will provide a rapid desiccation of the weed. It is a salt-based herbicide. So you're spraying salt basically onto your weeds and they will die quite rapidly. So that might be worth looking for whether online or at your local garden center. Adios, A-D-I-O-S. If you do try it, let me know. I've never tried it. Let me know how it works. Thanks. Very good. (laughs) Okay, Charlie, thank you. And you know, son of a gun, my little uh, bell that I used to ring on the air (laughs) when we had a first-time caller, it's still lying dormant in my drawer Mm. at the office there. So I'm going to employ my little... A clapper here. (laughs) This goes out to Aiden in Bruce Mines, and I'll tell you where that is in a moment. But Aiden says, enjoy your program. We listen every Saturday morning on the Internet. I'm a first-time caller. (laughs) Welcome. All right. (laughs) We, We live on the North Channel of Lake Huron on waterfront property, so our temperatures are quite moderated. And we enjoy enjoy a wonderful growing season now. A beautiful nice. honeysuckle yeah. honeysuckle vine. Two years ago, I almost lost it due to some type of blight. I cut it back to about one foot. This year, it came back and produced beautiful blooms that the hummingbirds love. Now that fall is approaching, how much should I cut it back? It grows in every which way direction, and it's uh, very difficult <laughs> to train with ties. <laughs> <laughs> they are a bit unruly, those honeysuckles. So for the fall, what I would do with that vine is cut back 
uh, what seems sensible in terms of it not getting damaged in the winter. So whether it's banging against itself or uh, plants nearby or benches or it's in the walkway, cut that stuff back before winter. It's in the spring typically that we do our major pruning on any honeysuckle, whether it's a vine or a shrub. So just like you, you, you indicate that you took it down to a foot, and it's grown back beautifully. Do that every spring if you want. Take it right down to about two feet tall, 60 centimeters. Um, and then once you've taken the whole thing down to that height, choose the strongest stems to create that framework that you're looking for to cover the support that it's growing on. So you might have, you know, 50 stems coming up from the ground once you've got it down to two feet tall. Take some of them right down to ground level. Just keep the strongest, the firmest, the best looking ones. And, and then the nice thing about honeysuckle is you can trim it any time during the year. If it's looking untidy or growing in directions you don't want it to grow, pull it to pruners. And remember, you're the boss. This plant does not does not decide what's going on. You do. So feel free to give it a trim anytime you want during the growing season. All righty. Uh, and Charlie, I'm going to uh, jump to a question in from Alice McKinnon in Mount Hope due to uh, timing concerns for this segment. And both you and I got a kick out of this one. Uh, <laughs> Alice says, Hiya, Charlie and Frank. We had a ton of Japanese beetles this summer on our roses. Then they found the morning glories. My husband checked many times daily for weeks to catch these devils. He has a tin pie plate and a small <laughs> blowtorch. He torches them, then he knocks them on the plate dead. Many of them are found copulating on the leaf. Some of the leaves are burnt too, but now after these few weeks of doing this, we have done. They're gone. Either he's killed them or they moved to someone else's plant. They were very bad this summer because of the humidity. Some days he got up to 10. It was uh, his daily mission. Ha ha. I truly, truly enjoy your show every week and hate to miss it. Well, I keep thinking of those little beetles. You know, they're right in the middle of copulating and somebody exactly. comes by with a blue blowtorch. You talk about a hot time. Wow. <laughs> well, not, not to mention the plants. Yeah. It's like blowtorching. Like an orgy is going on in the plants, and the blowtorch comes out and, you know, annihilates the plants and the bugs. <laughs> it's, it's a great visual. Thanks, Alice. Uh, all right. Here's what's real, what I would suggest. Tell your husband to put away the blowtorch. He doesn't need that. All he needs is like a, a little bucket with some water in it and, uh, you know, a couple of drops of oil or soap. And when he goes out, instead of taking the blowtorch, take the bucket and then just knock. The, the insects rarely fly away. They're very slow moving. Japanese beetles are just the doziest insects in the world. If you just knock them from the leaf, even in the midst of their orgies, into the bucket, they will drown. Okay. And that just kills them in that way. And then if he wants to blowtorch them later, I guess he could. But um, point is, uh, the reason you're not seeing any now is because all insects have a specific life cycle and the Japanese beetles are no longer in the beetle form. They've laid all their eggs. That's what that copulating was all about. They laid a bunch of eggs and they've died. They've, they've gone away, died. The eggs are in the ground and they will stay in the ground until next spring when we'll see the next stage of the Japanese beetle life cycle. So for now, no beetles because the beetles have bit the dust with or without the blowtorch. <laughs> okay. Oh, brother, that was funny. Thank you for that, Alice. Gave, me, gave us all a good laugh there. Uh, we're going to come back and I'll deal with the question we jumped. Uh, Jennifer uh, Barolet has uh, written in several questions, 
And in order to be able to squeeze them all in, I thought we better uh, uh, hold that in abeyance for a moment. But we, uh, Charlie and I, shall return here on The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio in just a couple of moments. Thank you for hanging with us. This is Zoomer Radio Toronto. CFZM FM and CFZM AM. Owned and operated by MZ Media Incorporated. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Okay, Charlie, uh, this from Jennifer Barolet or Barolette. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but anyway, she has some garden questions, and boy, she's not kidding. She says, I hope you can answer. I, I, I just remembered that I listened to your show next weekend and don't want to miss your answers. Okay, out of control forsythia. The more we cut it back, the more it grows. We have at least six giant bushes and have tried to keep them under control. I believe these were planted in the mid-90s before we bought the property. I've cut back some to about two to three feet in past years, but they're all now taking over. These tend to travel throughout the garden, sprouting out new ones. Then we go on to the next question. Crazy wisteria, another out-of-control plant that rarely flowers anymore. This too was planted on an L-shaped foot, uh, six foot high, four foot wide on one side and six on the other trellis. It's been cut back to the bare minimum and has managed over the years to grow through and around the trellis, breaking it apart, but still standing. It also travels through the rest of the garden and through the lawn. How do we deal with this plant? It was lovely, but has been an ever-growing octopus. Maybe I'll let you deal with those two questions, and we'll hold the others in abeyance for a little bit, okay? Okay, so there's a theme going on there, right? She's yeah. got overgrown, out-of-control forsythia and overgrown, out-of-control wisteria. So... Honestly, you know, just like we paint our dining rooms every 15 or 20 years to freshen up the dining room, we have to replace plants. Plants get overgrown if they're not maintained properly and they become a problem. So, you know what, you need like a backhoe, it sounds like, in your backyard to dig up, like eliminate those forsythia. They are never a really beautiful plant at the best of times. They they grow in a fairly unruly fashion. They're beautiful in the spring, but after that, there's not much going on. They're just green plants. And six giant forsythia is a lot of forsythia, uh, particularly in an urban uh, garden. So I would, I'd get rid of them. Now, like, it'd be nice if you could just get, like, tear them out of the ground, whether it's attaching a chain to the bumper of your car, like cut them all down and then dig them up as best you can. Same with the wisteria. The wisteria are often not planted in the right places. They grow very, very large and very, very heavy. And that's always one of the things with wisteria. If you're going to plant it, I know people love wisteria. It's a beautiful vine with beautiful flowers, but it's a very heavy, very vigorous plant. So you don't just put it on and some small, you know, small trellis or arbor or fence. It's got to go on very, very solid structure. And the pruning of wisteria is a bit challenging to get it to flower and to keep it under control. It is an ongoing process and you want to minimize the green growth and maximize the flowers. So a little bit of research, if you want to try and keep that wisteria is one thing, but it's, it is a, a kind of a pruning challenge. Personally, I get rid of them, all of it. I get rid of the forsythia and get rid of the wisteria and start fresh. 
All right. Now, as we've indicated in past programs, uh, we will, when we get back into the studio, devote a certain section to emails. And I'm going to hold those uh, remaining questions that came in from Jennifer to that point for uh, live studio <laughs> stuff. Meantime, from Aldina, we have a question. Hi, Charlie and Frank. What's your opinion on throwing out old leaves, flowers, etc., back on the ground to break down and enrich the soil? I know if it has fungus that it shouldn't be done. Thanks for your response, Aldina. Okay, thanks. Good question, Aldina. You know what? I'm a huge fan of not uh, sending anything off the property. So whether it's old leaves, flowers, uh, weeds, any of it, I keep it. But I do not necessarily just put it back on the ground to break down. I have specific, you know, back when I was in Richmond Hill, I had four different composters and I had red worms in the composters and they did a great job chewing down anything I threw in there, whether it was a banana peel or a dandelion, it was chewed down to beautiful compost by the red worms and that compost is what went out into the garden not the banana peels and not the weeds uh, here in the county prince edward county and the country i'll be setting up some compost as well uh, bins much larger sort of situation because i i love keeping all that material organic material on the property um, if you go directly like say with a banana peel directly onto the ground or just under the surface of the soil some people do that the problem the problem is, is that the microorganisms that are required to break down the banana peels um, will go do that. And while they're doing that, they will use nitrogen in the process and they produce heat. So it's better to keep the nitrogen available for your chosen plants rather than having the nitrogen tied up by the bacteria and the microorganisms. So that's why composting separately from the garden is a better, more efficient way to, to still get the same end, um, you know, end, end product, but, uh, but keep the garden just doing its thing. All right. Um, I'm going to jump to our uh, question from Catherine Gann, again, because of timing issues here. Uh, oh, yeah, she starts with a lovely note. I, I really, really appreciate this. She says, Hi, Charlie and Frank. I simply have to say to the both of you that you worked very affectionately together. <laughs> Frank, please don't ever <laughs> think true. of leaving Charlie's show. Golly, I won't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, I think not. <laughs> and uh, Catherine goes on to say, Charlie, I have a 15-year Japanese maple in my Richmond Hill backyard that faces east. It doesn't get much sun because it's uh, close to the house and deck. It hasn't been trimmed or pruned before. The trunk is five feet from the deck and some of the branches overhang over the deck. I'm completely knocking down the deck and rebuilding in the same size in the spring of 2021. It's a lovely tree and I don't want it destroyed. Please tell me if the new deck rebuilding will affect the tree with all that digging and drilling of a six feet deep uh, foundation. Hmm. There you go. I'm going to hold okay. it there. Yeah. Okay. So um, I looked at the pictures. Number one, I can see whippersnipper damage at the base of the tree. So do not in the future ever come close to that tree with a whippersnipper. Dig out the turf at the base, put mulch at the base, and don't have any cutting tools touching the bark. That's very, very hard on any trees. Never have grass growing right up to them. Yes, indeed. That tree needs to be trimmed back before construction starts. I suggest that you uh, look up a professional certified arborist to do that job for you. It's a big tree. You need it pruned properly for it to survive the stress it's going to experience while the construction's going on. So uh, try you, some, some of the arborists in your area include Davy Trees or Shady Lane or 
or go to landscapeontario.com. Their website will allow you to put in what you're looking for and your postal code, and it'll come up with Landscape Ontario members in your area. But either way, get a professional to come and do that um, for you and call the arborist this fall. They'll probably do the trimming in the spring, but they may want to do it this fall. You never know. So okay. that's, that's my suggestion. Okay. Uh, right. a, a, a note to uh, Catherine, as I mentioned to Jennifer, due to the uh, length of the questions here, mm-hmm. I have to hold some till next time we're in the studio, hopefully next week live. Uh, and I'll uh, rephrase some of your questions and we'll get Charlie to give you a hand with those. Meantime, Charlie, uh, that's it. We're at the checkout counter, my friend. We we are. (laughs) It's it's all there it is. So thank you. Thank you, Frank. Couldn't do any of this without your wonderful affectionate help. I do look forward to seeing you in real (laughs) face-to-face sometime soon. Exactly. You bet. Thanks a bunch, Joel. Couldn't do it without your help either. Thanks for the questions, everybody. See you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.